Take Command is a new book released by Dale Carnegie. The book features leadership stories from our podcast guests, as well as young up-and-coming professionals. Published by Simon & Schuster, Take Command is co-authored by Joe Hart and Michael Crom. Visit TakeCommand.com for more details and to buy the book. Now to our latest episode. Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest has helped thousands of people develop better habits for their lives and work with this best-selling book, Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. He is the founding CEO of Rise, which partnered with then First Lady Michelle Obama to deliver low-cost healthcare services to people in need. His startup was named App of the Year and sold in a successful exit to the NASDAQ-listed company One Medical. He also serves as a visiting scholar at Harvard Medical School, an emissary for gross national happiness between the United States and the Kingdom of Bhutan. Please welcome the best-selling author and entrepreneur, Sunil Gupta. Sunil, it's great to see you. Welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Joe, I always enjoy our conversations. I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, thank you. Me too. I've been looking forward to this a while. I mean, we know each other. We met each other a number of years ago back at the Detroit Homecoming event. Uh, you were a speaker and you were talking about Dale Carnegie. Actually, it was a little embarrassing because I was not in the room at the time. I had to hear about it from other people. But it's been great to get to know you and you've got an amazing story to tell. So let me ask you, if I may, people who know you or know of you know you're a best-selling author, you're a successful entrepreneur, you've got a docu-series with American Express it hasn't always been linear, right? You've had kind of different things that happened along the way. We want to talk about those, but tell us about you. Tell us about where you grew up, a little bit about your background. I grew up outside of Detroit, not far from you, Joe, and we both bonded over our sort of our Detroit area roots and the vibe that comes with being sort of from that area. That's an important part of my story, but, you know, it goes back further than that. My parents are both immigrants from, you know, South Asia. My mom was born and raised in what was now known as Pakistan and became a refugee when India and Pakistan sort of split. Her story is inseparable from my story because she sort of grew up in poverty, no electricity, no running water. And the remarkable move that she made was that she taught herself how to read. And the first book that she read from cover to cover was the story of Ford Motor Company, of all companies, you know, because Ford Motor Company was like the Google of its day. It was the big company that everybody sort of knew about. And she decided after reading that book that one day she was going to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company. And her parents and the village that she was living in, they all got behind the dream. They saved all the money they had to get her on a boat to the United States where she ended up getting a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. And the day after she graduates, she finds her way to Detroit, Michigan, where she's going to apply for her dream job as an engineer. And here's where the story kind of takes a little bit of a twist, Joe. She gets into the room. She actually finds her way into a room with a hiring manager. 
And this hiring manager thinks he's hiring her for the role of a secretary. In the middle of the meeting, he realizes, wait a second, are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, look, I'm sorry, we actually don't have any female engineers working here right now that I know of. And it's this really sort of deflating moment for my mom because she's put in all this work, all this sacrifice. And so she you know, picks up her resume, she picks up her purse, and she begins to walk out of the room. It's really deflated. But before she turns the doorknob, she turns around and she looks this hiring manager in the eyes. And she tells him her story about everything that it took for her to be in this country, to be in this city, to be in this very room. And then she says to him, look, I mean, if you guys don't have any female engineers, things are changing, you know, hire me now. And together we will build that team. We'll go out and recruit the best female engineers and we'll have them work right here at Ford Motor Company. That guy was so moved, so inspired by that conversation that he went out and he fought with his colleagues. He fought with his bosses. And in 1967, my mom becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. Meets my dad through, you know, happenstance. I can tell you that story if you want, but they end up moving to a small town outside of Detroit called Novi. And then Joe, you're familiar, not too far from you. And, and that's where we were born and raised. It's an incredible story. I mean, just all that your mom went through. So all of this precedes your being born. Your mother raises you. What were some of the qualities that you saw in your mom that really had an impact on who you are today? I think the thing that my mom taught me more than anything else was to play what I call the game of now, not the game of someday, but the game of now. And with the game of now, you don't necessarily wait for courage in order to take action. You take action and then you let courage catch up along the way. One of the things that I remember I asked my mom, I said, you know, how did you build the courage to do everything that you did, the journey? Because there are often times when I'm literally scared to give a speech. I'm scared to walk into a room. How is it that you in your early 20s as a refugee were able to make this trek across the world, leaving your family behind with so little money in your pocket? I mean, the risk behind that is extraordinary. And what she said to me was really surprising. She said, it wasn't courage. It was action. I just took action. It was action after action after action. That's the thing is that I think oftentimes the three words that tend to hold us back is I'm not ready. You know, I'm not ready to step into that role. I'm not ready to speak my mind. I'm not ready to run with that new idea. And I think the thing that mom impressed upon me more than anything else is people who do great things are hardly ever ready to do what they did. And I think the research bears that out. You know, now as an author and somebody who goes around the world meeting with leaders, like if there's one common denominator, it's that none of them were really ready. You know, like Ben and Jerry were bagel shop owners. They weren't ready to become Ben and Jerry's. You know, three friends from design school weren't ready to become Airbnb. A 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden, wasn't ready to build an environmental movement. But, you know, Greta Thunberg has been nominated for three Nobel Prizes now for all of her work. She's a teenager. She wasn't ready necessarily to do what she did. I think that's the thing more than anything else is that I never want to play the game of someday. I want to play the game of now. And that doesn't mean that there's not going to be setbacks and mistakes failures along the way. But, you know, one of the mantras that I've sort of learned to adopt now, largely because of my mom, and I think also a lot because of Dale Carnegie, is that long-term success often comes from short-term embarrassment. Long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. If you can learn something from it, if you can do something from it, and if you can learn something from it, well, gosh, I mean, I think failure can be the most important teacher we might have.
Sometimes we take action and the action doesn't result in the thing that we want it to, right? I mean, so your mom or the Ben and Jerry example or other examples where people took action and it worked out, you took some actions and it didn't work out. And just even to back up a second, we've talked about how people could look at where you are right now and say, gosh, you know, Sunil has been so successful, but they don't see the actions that maybe didn't work out, but you learn from them and you kept persevering. Speak about some of those kinds of times you did live in the now, you took the action, it didn't work out, and then you move forward. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about some of those examples is that like Ben and Jerry, it didn't work out. You know, when I went and saw them in Vermont and I sat down with them, my assumption was, hey, was you open up your first shop? And then it kind of blew up. Not at all. They opened up their first shop and they ran out of money. Then they opened up another shop and that one almost ran out of money and so on and so forth. The three friends from design school that started Airbnb, again, my assumption is they came up with the idea, they put up the site and it blew up. Not at all. The first two years, there was zero growth. Their investors were thinking about pulling out. They were having a tough time making it all work until something finally clicked into place. So I think that we look at success stories sometimes in the wrong way because it's to no fault of our own. If you Google these people, what you're going to find is almost a clear path to success. You're going to see the headlines. You're going to see the bio. You're going to see all this stuff that makes us believe that it was linear when it actually wasn't. And I'm certainly an example of that. I mean, before I started a company that worked called Rise, I'd started two companies that failed and they failed big. And they were pretty public as well. In fact, one day I get a call from the organizer of a conference and she says to me, hey, you've been nominated twice to speak at our conference. I like public speaking. And I said, that's great. Like, what's the name of the conference? And she says, FailCon. Joe, it literally stands for Failure Conference. And so I'm like, let me get this straight. I have been nominated twice to be a keynote speaker at a conference on failure. Oh my gosh. How'd you feel when she's telling you this? I mean, what's going through your head? What's going through my head is, my gosh, this is my brand. I think I just turned 30, actually. And, and like most people that age, we're very concerned with how we're perceived. I feel like now that I'm in my early 40s, I've kind of bucked that just a little bit. I, I'm a little bit more comfortable with myself, but it's taken a lot of work for me to get there. And 10 years ago, I didn't feel that way at all. I was very carefully trying to manage the perception that the world had towards me. And now here I am, this person who's being invited to speak about failure because I have failed. It didn't feel very good. And what happened next was even worse because I didn't know this at the time, but there was a reporter from the New York Times in the audience. So literally as I'm up on stage, she's scribbling notes. There's a photographer taking photos for the Times. You fast forward to a full-length article on failure with my face as the cover of this article. Like, I kid you not, there was a point in time, this story went so viral that there was a point in time where you could have Googled the word failure. Like, that's it. Just the word failure. And my face would have been one of your top search results. Here I am trying to manage my perception, trying to be perceived by the world as a success story. And literally, I am now the internet's poster child for failure. How did you move forward from that? Or what did you do? This is where it kind of comes back to mom's wisdom. And again, I think it comes back to some of the core values of Dale Carnegie, which is like long-term success can come from short-term embarrassment if you can learn something from it, right? if you can do something with it. And so I really sort of in that moment racked my brain on what, what is it that I can do with this article? And what I decided to do is I started to email all these people that I admired. 
from Oscar winning filmmakers to, you know, Michelin star rated chefs to people who had started iconic companies, people who didn't know who I was. But what I would do is I would include a link to this article in the email. And I would basically say in this email, as you can see from this article, I don't know what I'm doing. Would you be willing to give me some advice? And what I was surprised by was how many people responded and said, yes, I'll have a conversation with you. And I'm not sure looking back on it, if it was because the note had a lot of humility, it could have been that it could have also been that I think, especially people who have succeeded are open to talking about all these things that they don't get asked about, right? All these setbacks and these moments. So all of a sudden I started having these conversations and that was 10 years ago. And now it's led to hundreds of conversations with some of the most extraordinary people on the planet, not about their wins, but their losses, the times that things didn't go the way they did. And, and I found myself sort of sitting on this, basically this data set, Joe, and more than anything else, a data set of what did people do during that time? How did they recover? And how do they ultimately turn these things, these losses into ultimate wins down the line? The single headline that continued to come up over and over again, if I had to take all these conversations and I had to sort of meld them together and figure out one pattern, one specific pattern, it would be this. If you look at high momentum teams and leaders, meaning people who are able to build momentum, whether they win or they lose, but they continue to build momentum in their lives, and you compare those people to people who lose momentum, so people who I think have incredibly high potential, but they tend to sort of burn out or flame out over time. The people who fizzle out, very rarely do they run out of time, very rarely do they run out of talent, and very rarely do they run out of resources. What I think they ultimately run out of is energy. They run out of energy. They just get exhausted. And I think that's true for leaders. I think that's true for companies. We have ideas that we want to bring into the world. We even have the resources around us to do that. We get burnt out. We get exhausted. And that, I think, more than anything else, holds us back from, I think, what we're truly capable of. It's interesting just to go back because I want to talk about this concept of energy and, you know, what causes the burnout. I mean, certainly, you know, you've got overwork, you've got things not working out and so forth. You're talking about people who may be very determined and they start to flame out. But I want to go back because I wonder if there's something deeper here too, you know, and that's mindset. And there's two things that strike me about your story, about how you took this failure, so to speak. First, my dad always said, you know, if you can't laugh at yourself, you leave the job to others. You know, so the, the fact that you took that, and of course, you know, the famous Dale Carnegie quote about if, you know, life gives you lemons, make lemonade, but there had to be a mindset that you had. You could do a whole range of things, but you decided to turn that loss, if you will, into an opportunity. How do people in your experience develop the kind of mindset that says, look, I don't care what comes at me. I'm going to be able to turn this around. I'm going to keep moving forward. And I'm going to do that with the energy. I'm not going to lose momentum. Mm, yeah. It's a really good question, Joe. It's not that I didn't feel bad in that moment, you know? And so I want to make sure that that sort of comes across. I wanted to win. When there are conversations about failure, I think sometimes the, the mistake that we sometimes make is that what we're saying is to fail for failure's sake, but we're not. We're actually saying to fail for the sake of winning. I think success is a lousy teacher, right? But failure can teach us the best lessons. What it takes in terms of mindset, what that basically means is that if you can zoom out just a little bit, and you stop seeing sort of these as a scoreboard of wins and losses, but you ultimately can zoom out to the point where you look at it in terms of growth. Both lead to growth. Success leads to growth. Failure leads to growth. 
And ultimately, I think what we're trying to do as individuals is we're trying to grow. We're trying to be the best version of ourselves, right? So I think that that was ultimately the mindset shift. And that doesn't mean that failure doesn't hurt. It doesn't sting. But as it turns out, the sting is actually part of the growth because the next time you feel that sting, again, it's not like it hurts, but you've been there before. You know what that's like. And because you know what that's like, it builds this experiential wisdom inside of you where you can deal just that much better by that. And by the way, like Dale Carnegie, we talk about leadership. That's what ultimately what we're talking about. Leadership is not a solo effort. It's the people around you who are watching you. And people aren't just watching you when things go well. They're watching you specifically and more importantly, when things don't go well, right? And so that growth of going through the experiences, going through the fire, losing and losing big sometimes, but then being able to sort of recover and rebound is a skill. It's a skill that I think we can grow. And of course, we can't grow it if the only thing we do is succeed. No, it's true. And truly, our character is tested in those moments. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier in this interview is just, you know, getting a little older, you have a different perspective. One of the challenges is a lot of times, I think when, when we're younger, we tend to overvalue the things that happen. We worry about what everyone thinks about us. We worry about how's this going to look. And so you get a little older, it just doesn't hurt as much. But you're right. We can develop if we face the failures don't take it too seriously. What can we learn from this? Then we grow and we develop resilience. And that resilience is like a muscle, right? I mean, because yeah. that certainly helped you for other challenges that happened along the way as well. I think that's right. I used to look at sort of winning and losing as sort of almost a pendulum, right? Like there's days when I felt like I was winning and there was days I felt like I was losing. The pendulum swung to the other direction. Today, the big thing is I just look at it as growth. What did I learn today, right? Like, what did I learn this month? What have I learned this year? One of the things that I've decided is that I'm no longer going to make to-do lists for my new year, right? For my new year's resolutions. What I am going to make is a to-learn list. So for example, right now, I'm working on a new idea for a television show, right? And I could say that my goal is that that show is going to get picked up by a studio in 2023, 10 years ago, that would have been the way that I would have declared a New Year's resolution. My New Year's resolution today for that same exact sort of theme is that I want to learn how to develop a show. I want to learn what it takes to develop a great television show. Now, all of a sudden, you know, whether I win or whether I lose, I've learned, right? I've grown. And now that can sound a little bit Pollyannish. That can sound a little bit sort of like that's nice and fuzzy, but that won't lead to the best outcomes. What I've realized, though, is that it does, because if I learn that, whether this show goes or not, I'm going to go to the next show. I now have this skill, and I'm not going to lose any of my energy and enthusiasm because I don't necessarily have to count it as like, God, I tried that thing, and it just it failed. It's I learned. There's a great quote, and I forgot who said it, but it's something along the lines of like, if I win, it's great, and if I lose, it's experience. That sums up exactly what I think we're talking about, which is, you know, to some degree, it's all good if we can look at it in the right way. Again, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. I think it might be good for you to say, hey, I've got a goal to have a TV show picked up that I'm developing. And if it doesn't happen right away, that's okay as long as I learn. Your goal is still ultimately to get there, but you're not going to beat yourself up. If it doesn't happen, you're going to get there. I have no doubt you'll get there if that's what you're setting your mind to, or you're going to go somewhere that it leads you that might be even better. You've mentioned a couple times about Dale Carnegie. You took a Dale Carnegie 
program as a teen. I think you've also been a graduate assistant. Tell us about how did you get into Dale Carnegie as a teen and what was your experience? It's so funny because I feel like this whole podcast is going to be about my mom, but she really is sort of the genesis for a lot of this. I mentioned before that mom was now sort of an engineer at Ford Motor Company. She is also very, very different from the people around her. She's a refugee from the other side of the world. She's surrounded by mostly white men. She's a fish out of water. And, you know, my mom handled that very, very well. But at the same time, there was a lot that she needed to learn. She needed to learn how to stand on her own two feet in front of others. She needed to learn how to speak publicly. She needed to learn how to have confidence in meetings. She'd put in the grit. She'd put in the hustle. And she was smart. She'd gotten a great education. But now she needed to learn all the other things. And there was no manual for that, right? There were plenty of manuals on how to do the engineering work. But there was no manual on how to actually get along with other people, especially if you're coming from a different culture. But one day, she literally sees a sign-up inside the cafeteria for a course called Dale Carnegie happening right there at Ford Motor Company. And so she signs up for it and it changes her entire life because now she's in this environment, which is not just teaching her how to perform at her job from the perspective of an engineer, but as a human being, right? What are the human skills that we need? And it was because of that class that she was able to sort of live this career where she was able to grow as not just an individual contributor, but as a leader, as somebody who, you know, became somebody who could collaborate really well with other engineers, who could lead design projects. But as far back as I can remember, my mom was talking about Dale Carnegie. You will take Dale Carnegie because it changed my life and I believe it will change yours. So literally, you know, I turned 16 years old. And there's a program in Michigan called 4-H. And I know it's in other states as well. But basically, the idea is, you know, identifying, you know, students who want to grow into leaders. And they had a scholarship program to Dale Carnegie. I still remember the day my mom printed it out at her desk at work. She brought it home. And she's like, we're filling this out. You're going to apply for this scholarship. And of course, I was very interested because I spent over a decade hearing about how important this was. So I was obviously going to reply and I did and I was lucky enough where I got it and so all of a sudden I remember I had just learned how to drive Joe some of my first drives from Novi Michigan to a different city to a neighboring town was for Dale Carnegie class and I remember Ralph Nichols was the first person that I ever saw present first Dale Carnegie instructor and the charisma <laughs> this just sheer energy and the charisma that he had I had never seen anything like it before. And by the way, like I was also not as much as my mom, but I was also kind of a fish out of water. I went to a school that was predominantly white. I was definitely like known as like the brown kid in school. I didn't have a lot of confidence. I wasn't somebody who enjoyed public speaking. And all of a sudden I'm seeing this guy light up the room and I'm like, wow, I would like to have just a little bit of that. Yeah, Ralph, by the way, as you know, he's a legend in the Dale Carnegie business. He's someone I've known for 25 plus years. I can't imagine what that experience must have been like for you to be in the room because he is so enthusiastic. He must have really been bringing the energy. So you take the class. What was the impact that it had on you short term and how has it impacted you over time? So Phil Zeller ended up being the instructor for that class. Ralph would pop in from time to time and and the impact that those two guys had was, I mean, it's immeasurable. I think that, you know, the class and their leadership, I still remember the first time I won a pen. You know, I still remember the first time I got up and I gave a talk. I remember I talked about my tennis coach 
it was a story with him and I won the pen that day. And I remember driving home and this pen is sitting in the passenger seat. And I remember thinking to myself, that's the first time that I ever really won anything. And it's certainly the first time I ever won, you know, something for my ability to speak or to be up in front of a group of people and won something. It opened up something inside of me. And of course, I'm 16 years old at the time, so I didn't know what that was. But today, I guess the best way to describe it is confidence. It's belief. I really, really do believe we all have that thing inside of us. I haven't met anybody yet who doesn't have that thing inside of them. In my culture, in the Indian culture, we call this dharma. It's a gift. It's an essence. There's something about you. Whether we share that thing or not is really up to us, right? And the connective tissue between those two things, I think, is really belief. And to a large degree, it's confidence. So at the age of 16, to be given the gift of, gosh, you can believe in yourself. And when you do, good things happen. I can't think of really anything better. Like I have a 10-year-old and a five-year-old. And every morning, we play a little game. And uh, we started playing this game during the pandemic because they were both doing homeschooling. And so, you know, I get them out of their Zoom laptops. But before I did, I would ask them two questions. I'd say, hey, what is the meaning of life? And they would say, to find your gift. And then I would ask, well, what is the purpose of life? And they'd say, to give it away. The meaning of life is to find your gift. And the purpose of life is to give it away. It's a quote from Picasso, one of my favorites of all time. And that is the essence of Dale Carnegie, right? We all have something inside of us. We all have this gift how we share that with the world, how we bring that forth is a skill. It's ultimately a skill and it's a belief. And I think that that's something that we can develop over time. Yeah, we certainly can. And it's interesting because so often we might not see that thing about ourselves. Other people might see it. Other people, our parents, particularly, I'm sure your mother, your father saw that in you. And, you know, having put six kids through the Dale Carnegie team program, I know as a fact, you know, they don't always see it. But boy, if you can help people unlock it, help them see it, they've discovered that first part, that meaning that you talked about. I want to Dale Carnegie that we love is helping people find that gift and then the confidence they have to share it. Now, your brother, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who's on CNN, he's a Dale Carnegie graduate also. Did he take it with you? Were you in the same class? And what was that like if he was? <laughs> yeah, so Sanjay did take the class. He took it also when he was in high school. And Sanjay is 10 years older than me. So by the time I came around, it was like mom's story and Sanjay's story. You know, And so Dale Carnegie, was it was almost like it was in our DNA. Sanjay was a practicing physician, right? He was a practicing physician in suburban Michigan. People often ask me about, my brother, and they will say, gosh, you know, so was he a journalist or was he an on-screen actor? Like, how did this all happen where he sort of led to CNN? The answer is neither of those things happened. He had no on-air experience. He was not a journalist by training. He was literally a surgeon practicing in suburban Michigan, but he decided that one day somehow he wanted to be on screen and he wanted to be reporting the news and he wanted to be helping people the way he was helping patients, but he wanted to do that at a larger scale. And I think that that was sort of a, you know, something that he sort of conceived for himself. And I think that that's where it sort of comes back to both mom and sort of her insistence that we play the game of now, not the game of someday. If you want something, you don't wait for courage in order to take action. You take action and you let courage catch up along the way. So he went for it. But I will also say that the reason that he could go for it, a lot of what gave him the ability to go for it was likely a lot of the stuff that he learned in Dale Carnegie. As we know, Joe, there's a lot of physicians out there 
who would love to be on television, but they don't necessarily have, they haven't learned how to present themselves well. They haven't learned how to be in front of an audience and how to speak authentically. These were all things that he learned at an early age, really, I think, shaped a lot of his career. But he may not have had fear. Maybe some of these things are things that helped him, but many people lack confidence. They are worried about how they'll be perceived. Can I do this or what's going to happen? If I try it, does it work? And I know, and I know you know from your experience talking to older people, that one of the things that people often regret the most are the things that they don't do, right? The things that they were afraid of. You know, so the fact that Sanjay, that you, that your mom, I mean, all of these are examples of people who, this is the Take Command podcast. That's what Taking Command's all about, right? And if things don't work out the way that we want them to, we find a way to keep on moving and being resilient. I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, what you're doing right now. You are working with American Express and really creating a docu-series and a podcast, uh, interviewing some incredible people. Tell our audience a little bit about that. And what are one or two of the things that you've learned so far in the process of traveling the world and meeting these incredible people? I started taking an approach that actually is inspired a lot by sort of just Dale Carnegie himself, because I still remember when I read How to Win Friends and Influence People, he starts out by talking about how he wrote the book. What was the methodology that he used? And one of the things that always struck me was that he went out and he spoke to all these interesting people, right? And of course, for Dale Carnegie, it's like the legends. He spoke to Thomas Edison. He spoke to Franklin Roosevelt. He spoke to all these sort of great leaders and then sort of wove together what he was learning. And I always found that to be really interesting. And so, you know, 10 years ago, I started doing that. I started meeting with all these people that I really admired. Then I started to learn and figure out what it was about them that I found most interesting. And I started to get much more interested in, I guess, the human side of things. Because when we think about leadership, we think about sort of like the practical, what you might learn in business school side of things. But then there's like the human side of things, right? How did I find a way to resilience? What did I do when things didn't go well? What did I learn about myself along the way? And I found myself getting really interested in all of that. And I started to write about those experiences, right? About what I was learning. And I started to do videos sometimes and do speeches about what I was learning. And American Express picked up on that and realized that a big part of what they wanted to do is they wanted to put those lessons into the world as well. And, and eventually we formed a partnership where the best way I can sort of describe it is sort of Anthony Bourdain for leadership, where I'm going around the world and I'm meeting people who are different leaders and realizing that whether you're in Bolivia or whether you're in Kansas City, like a lot of leadership is the same. A lot of what we think about sort of growth for ourselves and for our companies and our organizations and the people around us, most importantly, a lot of that is just really the same. There's a lot of common denominators here. The one thing you know that I think about most often today, everybody is, I think, concerned about and sort of dealing with is really burnout right? Because I think burnout isn't just something that holds us back from a well-being level, but it holds us back from a work level because we can't do our best work if we're burnt out. Story I'll share with you, Joe, like when I started my company, finally I started a third company that worked and it was called Rise. And what we did is we did one-on-one -on -one health coaching right over your mobile phone. And so if you wanted to lose weight or if you wanted to lower your risk for diabetes or hypertension or heart disease, you would join our platform and we would match you to a coach and you would work with this person right over your mobile phone. Now, this was 2012 when I started the company. And today there's many sort of services out there like that. But at the time that was pretty unique, so much so that Apple had me come into headquarters to like tell them what this was all about. One of the things that I realized at that time was that as a startup, you don't have lots of customers, right? So you're constantly paying attention not to the numbers as much as the stories, 
So every piece of customer feedback that was coming in, I was pouring over and reading very, very carefully as a CEO. And one of the things I realized is that when people were losing weight or they were getting into better physical health, they weren't writing in to say, hey, I fit better into my jeans or I looked great at that wedding I was trying to look great at. What they were often writing in to say is, I feel like a better leader. I feel like a better manager. I feel more creative. I feel more productive. And the punchline that that led to for me was like, gosh, you know, we live in a world where we're conditioned, I think, to see well-being and work as two different things, right? And oftentimes we use the word balance. Like you got to spend time on well-being and you got to spend time at work. What I think we often ignore is that both of these things are actually essential for high performance. If you want to be a high-performing contributor, creator, leader, whatever, you have to take care of both of those things, right? Because if you don't feel good, you're not going to do your best work. And I would argue that if you're not doing your best work, you're working in a place that isn't filling you up, that can affect your well-being as well. So these aren't two things on opposite sides of a balancing scale. They're actually very, very intimately connected. And for me, that led to this body of work where it's like, I want to understand not just how leaders do things at a technical level, but I want to understand how they were performing at a human level. What were they doing for their own well-being that allowed them to rise to the highest levels of performance? So what have you learned about yeah. that? Because I mean, that's really a quandary for so many people. But before you answer that too, I'd just say your point about this being integrated is absolutely right. I mean, someone asked me not long ago because they know that I run and run marathons. They said, well, how do you justify spending time on your health when you've got so much work? And the answer is the two things are integrated. If I'm working out and eating well, I'm going to be a better leader. I'll be more effective at work. And when I'm not doing those things, I can feel it mentally. It's just our health is our most valuable asset. You know, we got to invest in ourselves and so forth. But what have you learned about how to address burnout? What are things that we can all take away from your insights? You know, one of the things I think has been really surprising for me is that vacations are actually a pretty weak instrument when it comes to burnout. You know, oftentimes people report feeling more burnt out, more stressed one week after vacation than they did one week before vacation, right? It's a pretty common thing. And that's not to say vacations are bad, but it's just that this tool that we've been using to prevent and deal with burnout, it's just not working. It's not working nearly as well as we thought it might. And so when we look at people who are high performers and are able to sustain success over time... What we're finding now, and this is in large part with the work that I've been doing at Harvard Medical School on faculty there, what we're starting to realize is that people who are performing in a sustained way, sustained high performance, are practicing what I call rhythmic renewal, rhythmic renewal. So they're not waiting for vacations or long breaks in order to take renewal time. They're actually taking breaks every single day. So the highest performers are taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day. Throughout the day, they're taking breaks. What are they doing? That's kind of the fun part, Joe, is that like these breaks don't need to be long. They can be five minutes and sometimes they can even be less. I think there's two kind of main rules. Number one is you're not working during that time. Number two is you're not multitasking during that time, right? So if you want to sit, some people like to meditate and breathe. You can do that. Joe, you're a runner. You know, some people run in place for a couple of minutes and it just kind of gets their heart rate up, right? Or they do jumping jacks. It might be as simple as sitting down and having a cup of coffee. When's the last time you sat down and had a cup of coffee without your phone nearby and you just literally savored every single sip of that cup of coffee, right? Just try it. It's unbelievable the kind of reset that can have and how good the coffee actually tastes 
it can take five minutes or less. When I started shooting this documentary series, I was new to being on camera and I was really, really nervous. And I remember being in Los Angeles and I was staying at a hotel and I got picked up by a driver. That morning I worked out, I got a good breakfast in. So I was trying to like really get myself into the right mindset. And when I got in the car with this driver, I realized from moment one that he was insanely stressed out, right? Like really, really stressed. It's clear he had been driving all morning. It's LA, LA traffic. And so I get in the car and you know, this guy's level of stress on the way to the studio lot where we were filming, his stress level is going up and up and up. And by the time we got to the studio lot, like not only is he fried, but I'm fried, right? Like the whole way there, he was cutting people off. He was like cursing people out. It was not the right environment. And now I'm supposed to go on camera, right? And I don't feel like nearly on top of my game. And yet I'm supposed to go do like my best work. What do you do? during that moment, right? Most of us, including me, you know, we'll just be like, all right, let me suck it up and let me just go, right? But in that moment, I decided to try something different, which is I said, you know, I'm going to take five minutes and I'm going to meditate. I'm an investor in a company called Calm. Calm is on my phone. I try as much as I can to use it. I don't use it every day, but I've tried. And in that moment, I felt like I needed it. I needed a five-minute meditation. But then here's where it gets interesting, Joe. I say to this driver, I say, hey, I'm going to meditate for five minutes before I get out of the car. Is there any chance that you want to meditate with me? <laughs> and this guy, he's a big guy. Like he's got tattoos popping up above his neck collar, like, you know, pretty imposing person. I'm like this little Indian dude. And he looks at me in the rearview mirror and he glares at me for a moment. But then he says, okay, I'll meditate with you. So I literally pull out my phone. I fire up a five minute meditation. And the two of us, we sit in that car together and we just breathe. The five minutes comes up. I feel better. I get out of the car, but so does he. And by the time I'm exited the vehicle, he has come around Joe and he has engulfed me in his arms. Wow. Big bear hug. Wow. Pulls me in. Right. Twice my size with a pretty awkward sort of sight for everybody on set who were looking at this. Like we almost get this little sway kind of going from side to side. He says to me, he says, Thank you. I really needed that. Thank you. His entire energy, everything about him was completely different. He had completely reset. And it was five minutes, right? So I guess the question that I have for you and whomever is listening right now is like, if that could happen for him in five minutes, imagine what would happen for you if you were taking these five-minute recoveries throughout your day. What I'm finding from the teams that I'm working with, the leaders that I'm coaching, is that for the first time ever, they're actually experiencing as much energy at the end of the day as they were at the beginning of the day, simply by taking these what I call rhythmic renewal along the way, these five-minute periods, because it accumulates, right? If you feel stressed and you take that stress to a next meeting, it's accumulating throughout the day. But when you have these five-minute recoveries, what you're doing is you're breaking it up, right? When we think about overwork, which I think a lot of us feel overworked, one of the things we pay attention to is we pay attention to duration, right? How many days in a row have we worked? And that triggers the sort of, I need a vacation or I need a big break. What we don't pay as much attention to is intensity. And the way that I would look at it as intensity is how much time are you spending without recovery throughout the day? Right. 
Because if you don't have any recovery throughout the day, you're in high intense mode all the time. And if you're in high intense mode all the time, I don't care if you're working eight hours or you're working 15 hours a day, you're eventually going to burn out. But if we have these little moments where we can just come back to ourselves, and again, it could be as simple as sipping a cup of coffee or listening to a song or taking a walk, you have these five minute breaks throughout your day, it's a continual reset and you can bring more energy, more productivity, more enthusiasm to whatever happens next. You know, it's easy to get into this kind of mechanical mindset and to put pressure on ourselves about productivity and how you know, we got to get these things done and so forth and we beat ourselves up. But if we don't take breaks, not only do we put that stress on ourselves and that physical stress that can hurt our bodies, as you said, though, we also share whatever we're feeling with the other people around us, you know, for good or for bad. So you were able to help that driver really reset his day. It was a complete, you know, hard reset, really. You're bringing up such a good point too, Joe. I just want to say, but like, it's not just about us. It's the people around us, right? And yeah. we know that 80% of communication is nonverbal, right? So, I mean, you can be saying all the right things, but if you're depleted and you're out of energy, everybody feels that. I don't care if you're on a digital screen or if you're in person, we can sense these things about each other. There's a great story, a guy named George Schaller. And George Schaller was probably the world's best primatologist who ever lived. And the reason that he was really good at doing what he did is he was able to get really, really close to mountain gorillas, like in a way that nobody else had. So Schaller was coming back with all this research and data and photos and experiences. And people were like, my God, we've been studying these primates for centuries. Like, why is this one man able to get so close to these gorillas? So finally, one day he's presenting his research at a conference and somebody in the audience gets up and asks him directly, why are these gorillas letting you in? His answer was, it's simple. I never carry a gun. I never carry a weapon. And everybody in the audience was like, well, what does that have anything to do with it? Like, yeah, we carry weapons for self-defense, but it's in our backpack. They're hidden away. And Schaller's answer to that was, you may be able to hide your gun but you can never hide your attitude around a gun. And the gorillas can always sense that. There's a certain type of energy that you bring, a certain type of vulnerability that you have when you don't have a gun in your backpack. And that's what he brought. And the overall theme though is exactly what you said, Joe, which is like, you can be saying all the right things. The gun in your backpack could be completely hidden away, but you know the gun is there and your energy will reflect that. And other people will always be able to pick up on that energy. Well, I love it, uh, Sunil. Thank you so much for sharing this. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? To me, it always comes back to the game of now, Joe. The game of now. There are three words that I think I hear all the time, and it's I'm not ready. I want to do that thing, but I'm not ready. Gosh, if the pandemic taught us anything, right? We can't take that time for granted. If there's something inside of you that's waiting to come out, Bring it out and learn. If it doesn't work right away, learn from that because it will eventually. Courage doesn't lead to action, but I think action ultimately leads to courage. And so just continue to act and continue to learn and you will get there. If there's anything that taught me that more than anything else, it is the work that you do, Joe. Like I think it's Dale Carnegie. I think back to you know a woman who was scared, who was a refugee from the other side of the world, who you know, decided to take a shot. And she was able to take that shot because other people took a chance on my mom, right? Other people took a chance on her. You know, I just want to say thank you because you and your organization and the work that you produce 
were the people who took a shot on her. My story is possible today because of you. And had you not taken a chance on her, then I wouldn't be here right now to share her story with you. You know, if you're listening right now, like I would say, let's just make a vow together, you and me right now, which is that we're not going to play the game of someday. We're going to play the game of now, right? We're going to go out into the world. We're going to express the ideas that make us come alive because if nobody has told you this, then let me be the first to tell you. I guarantee that you are ready. Well, thank you, Sunil. So inspiring and so true. I mean, we've got this life, this opportunity. Every day presents opportunity. Why not take it? Why not take it right now? And if now, now, when? So awesome. Thank you so much, Sunil. I uh, really appreciate you being with me on the show. Joe, thanks so much for having me. Such a delight. In today's Thought Leadership Spotlight segment, our guest will talk about going all in and working as hard as possible by applying one of the Dale Carnegie principles and never letting yourself be limited in your thoughts and the current situation you're in. Like Sunil Gupta, our guest will explain how to take command and fill your mind with thoughts of peace, courage, health, and hope. Please welcome owner, CEO, and master trainer of Dale Carnegie Southwest Michigan, Phil Zeller. Hello, my name is Phil Zeller, and I'm here for the toughest internship in the history of Lansing Community College. Well, hello, Phil Zeller. My name is Nada, and I've been waiting for you for five years. For five years, we've had the opportunity to place someone in a Fortune 100 company, and you might just be that person. 45 minutes later, Nada presented me with a life-changing opportunity. For two weeks, I went through computer-based training, assessments, and onboarding interviews in order to prove my worthiness for the opportunity. During that time, I had a singular purpose to prove them that I belonged. Everything else in my life was put on hold to focus on what could be versus what is. What life was, it was working 70 plus hours a week at $3 an hour to make enough to afford full-time tuition and go to college. Living out of a Chevy S10 pickup truck and eating day-old food that was destined for the dumpster. What it could be, becoming an employee of a Fortune 100 company being able to afford a place to live, being able to afford food, being able to sleep for more than two and a half hours a night, and actually developing a social life. As Sunil shared, you've got to take action. Fill your mind with thoughts of peace, courage, health, and hope is what Dale Carnegie challenges us to do. I was determined to do the very best I could. On my first full day, my new manager greeted me by saying, you're the punk from Last Chance College, and you don't belong here. My response? Yes, sir, I have a lot to prove, and I'm honored for the opportunity. My commitment was to be all in and work as hard as possible. Two months later, I became his top salesperson. Three months later, they hired me on full-time, and within two years, I became a sales manager for a Fortune 100 company. Bottom line, as Dale Carnegie shared, do the very best you can, and you will never be limited in your thoughts or by the current situation that you're in. Join us and order a copy of Take Command in hardcover, ebook, or audiobook format at your favorite bookseller or at takecommandbook.io. Also, you can visit takecommand.com for more information about the book and additional resources. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.